Welcome to Homefront on Missouri Grassroots Radio. I'm Cynthia Davis, your host. As a writer, speaker, and former legislator, we discuss limiting government, fiscal responsibility, and fair taxation. I'm a mother of seven and a wife of one for over three decades, so I bring you my personal experience. And now it's time for Homefront with Cynthia Davis. Everybody, we are so excited to have a special guest tonight. Uh, and, and tonight, Robert, we have a very special gentleman from Washington State. Normally, we do Missouri folks, but this is Missouri Grassroots Radio. But um, we have tonight Robert Andrews. He is a retired high school athletic coach and the author of a very comprehensive book, The Family, God's Weapon for Victory. The thing is 358 pages, and we're not going to get to it all tonight, but Robert, that was our Missouri introduction. I don't know if you guys like Ronnie Millsap out in Washington State, but good evening, and thank you for joining us. Well, I don't know who Ronnie Millsap is, but let me tell you, I like that music. That sounded great. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) Well... Well, I listen, Cynthia. I'm, I'm from. I'm originally from Oklahoma, so anything that sounds a little country or bluegrass, I'm for. Neat. Well, you know, I can't hold Washington State against you. I've been there many times, but in preparation for the show tonight, there was a gray fog and mist that fell upon Missouri in the middle of. Here we are in July, <laughs> the end of July, and it reminded me suddenly of my experience in Spokane, Washington. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I live up in the mountains, about 65 miles north of Spokane, and just outside a little town called Colville. And I'm on the banks of the the uh, Roosevelt Lake Roosevelt, which is the lake behind the Grand Coulee Dam. So I'm out in the country and uh, just enjoying life out here. Well, there's a foggy mist all over the country tonight on family issues, and that's why yeah. we have Homefront because we are here to help shine the light and and cut through the fog. And I was hoping that you could help us tonight with some of the confusion. This book that you've written is remarkable. It's 358 pages. It actually says 357, but there is text on another page, so I counted that. And that's like almost one page for every day of the year. So what what makes... Tell me, Robert, what made you decide to write the book, and is the fam- how did you come to the conclusion that the family was God's weapon for victory? Well, I, I have been, uh, I, I met the Lord when I was in college, and I've been a, an, an active Christian, an eager Christian, uh, since I was 20 years old. And uh, I spent a number of years uh, in a, a, a relatively high-pressure college evangelistic association uh, evangelistic uh, parachurch organization, let me put it that way. And uh, I began to realize that God, God's um, vessel for extending his kingdom is the church. And, and we had a parachurch organization that was not the church. And, and I met the Lord through that organization, so I have nothing negative to say about it. But 
but I, I began to, to look for uh, the biblical New Testament expression for the church. And so as a result, uh, the churches that I've been involved in have been more or less non-traditional, as we discussed before the show. We believe in corporate leadership, and we think that's the, the pattern that the New Testament lays out. So I have been over the years, uh, I've, I've been a school teacher, I've been a basketball coach, I've done a number of things, but also in the process I've been a teaching elder uh, in our church. So a, a part of my ministry has always been a family. I've always focused on that. I had three kids myself, uh, and I tell in my book about uh, I, after three kids, I said to my wife, you want more kids? And uh, she said, no. And she said, do you want more kids? And I said, no. And so I had a vasectomy. And a few years later, I began to understand a little bit about the power that's in the family and that's in generational Christianity and the fact that our children will be our influence in the next generation. And I realized what I had done, Cynthia, is say to God, I appreciate your blessings, and 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 I, I love my kids with all my heart. The, the greatest blessing in, in my life had been my children. But then I said, I don't want any more. So when I saw that at age 48, I went back and had a, a reversal. Uh, and we, we, we didn't have any more kids, although we had a little window there we could have. But, but the family had always been a, a real focus in, in my life. And when my kids were in, uh, in high school, I was asked to come and teach a family living class at the Christian high school they were attending in Seattle. So I did that for two years in that, uh, in that, uh, school and then two years in another school with my daughter. Uh, and it was during those four years that I developed the material that you found in the book. Uh, and, uh, uh, so I've honed it down. I published the book in 1995, and basically it's a compendium of family life. It deals with all the issues that you're going to face uh, in in being involved in a Christian family. The first couple of units are on laying a theological foundation. What does the Bible say about family? Uh, first of all, where do you go to find out about family? My contention is we go everywhere but the Scriptures. Let's look well, and see what the gonna, Bible says. You're not you're yes. not going to get it from public school, and no. um, you're not going to get it from Planned Parenthood, and you're not going to get it from the magazines and the magazine racks. You're not going to even get it. Most people anymore are not going to get it from their parents. So that's a good question, and we are in trouble. We're looking at the world and asking how did we get so far away. In Europe, they've seen such a population decline that they're looking at the possibility of their countries, the European countries, going into extinction yes. or being overrun by other people from other countries. So, you know all the great Mexican food we like, and the, not Mexican, but the Italian and, and all the French yes. and... And um, the even Great Britain doesn't hardly look like Britain as much as it used to because, I mean, it used to be filled with English people, British people. So I appreciate your perspective and sharing your story with us because we ha are living in a very anti-child world today, and we have such pressure put on everybody to use birth control, and if you don't, you're so irresponsible. Well, maybe, you know, somebody, my friend May Dugan, who's a good Catholic, said that <clears throat> somebody 
said to her, you Catholics are so irresponsible. And she said, no, we're just so irresistible. <laughs> <laughs> what a great line. I love it. <laughs> well, We've since turned you, it you, into... You know, I, I, I don't know if you if you read the part in the book where I talk about the fact that uh, if we have, uh, I, I think at the time I wrote this, 250 million people in, in uh, the United States, if 10% of those were Bible-believing Christians... And, and we just uh, let God plan our families and, and had as many kids as he sends us, because if they are blessings from him, they will be that. Uh, it, it would only take, and, and everybody else continues to, to limit their families to just uh, two, let's say. It would take 90 years for those that the 10% of those the Christians to have a majority. And we would do away with abortion. We would do away with all the things that right now we look at and fight to do away with and don't have the votes to do it. Right. Well, we got a lot of pressure ourselves. Um, since you told me your personal story, I'll share mine. From the very first child we had, our both sets of parents were unhappy. Now, what that says to a newly married couple is, you guys have just done something bad. And we were stumped. We were truly stumped. I was like, this is so cool. We're going to have a baby. And they're like, no, this is not so cool. You're ruining your life now. And with that mentality, wow. what hope is there? And then wow. um, we got to a point where, where um, you know, we didn't want to tell our parents anymore because it always met with such a horrible reaction. We have seven children, and each one of them was born by C-section. And for those who are non-medical, that means they have to cut your body open. It's terrible. It's nightmarish. But, but, but. So many people, when I tell them I have seven children, they say, well, I didn't know you could do that. I thought you could only have three. And I had to say, I've never had a doctor tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> we love our rumors. These are the ur- urban oh, legends. That's, Cynthia, that's incredible. <laughs> I love well, it. I believe there are a number of women who figure three is plenty, and so they say to their doctor, am I only supposed to have three? Please, please, only three, oh, right? I love it. And then he goes along with it. But they'll tell you really what you want to hear. I've never had a doctor tell me, oh, you shouldn't have more than three. I, You know, it's biologically it must be possible or I wouldn't have seven. But each one was cuter than the one before. So <laughs> so what are you going to do, huh? <laughs> yeah. My, daughter, my so- daughter-in-law weighs 110 pounds, and she's had six. And she's a right. little wife of a thing, and she's as healthy as a horse. It's a 110-pound yeah. horse. <laughs> so. Well, I think a big reason why parents don't want to have children is what you got to into in Chapter 5, where you ask, who is in charge? Parents today have a real struggle in knowing where to draw the line. I mean, we have yes. so much domestic violence, and that it's really a bigger problem than ever. I remember when I was in the city government, and I asked our chief of police, what's the number one crime problem we have in our city? Is it... Is it burglary or theft or trespassing? And he said, no, the number one problem in most cities is domestic violence. So we're beating each other up. Just today I opened up my Facebook 
and read this horrific article of what happened in my own community, it says that Catherine Vigil 30 of the, um, she lives in Foley, which is not very far from me, and she was charged Monday with first-degree domestic assault. According to the Lincoln County Sheriff's Office, the boyfriend told them in a physical fight that uh, they broke out. They were punched. <laughs> this this living boyfriend punched a his three year old son with both hands, and then the mom got upset, put her two kids in the car. I don't know how many kids they have together, or his or hers or both, but um, and then she got in the car and she drove over him. <laughs> Wow. And I look at these stories, and I'm, you know what? This is not the first or the only time. There are real problems. People don't know how to behave, but a lot of it starts with they don't get married. They don't know who's in charge because they're not married. So actually yeah. she wouldn't have any obligation to obey a non-husband. But what I'd like to know from you is how do we make sense? out of this where we are today and how do we know where the line is and who who is in charge so that's a great question and i think uh, the, the, a, a very simple solution is to understand i believe the kingdom of god because uh, if you look at the family through the lens of the kingdom what god is doing on the earth uh, you have a lot of questions about what to do and how to do it. A lot of those questions are, are answered. If you understand that right now Jesus rules over heaven and earth from his Father's right hand, and he delegates, in other words, the Lord has given his Son the kingdom after he ascended into heaven and, and seated him in his right hand, he gave him the kingdom, the kingdom of, 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 these wor- of, of the world. And he delegates that authority that God has given him down to his three institutions that he has established, the family, the church, and the civil government. And each one of those three established institutions has an authority structure. Obviously, the one that you're concerned about primarily in your program is the civil government. And Romans chapter 13 says that God has, no matter who they are, all authority comes from God, and God has placed those kings in places of authority. So he delegates that authority to the rulers uh, of the nations, and then those rulers will give account to him as to how they have ruled for him. The same thing is true with elders in the church and with parents, specifically the father and the family. Now, it, it's clear in First Corinthians 11 that, that Paul says uh, that Jesus is the head of every man, and the man is the head of his wife. So that authority, that kingdom authority flows from God, uh, God's right hand, Jesus at God's right hand, down to the Father. And the Father is the authority in the family. Now, now people rebel at that. They don't like that idea. Authority is a dirty word. But the three most important words in the kingdom are authority, responsibility, and accountability. If you have authority, you, you have the responsibility to carry that out appropriately. You are ruling for Jesus Christ. You will rule in your family the way he did, with love, laying down your life, being concerned about the welfare of your family and not your own. Those things all are a part of ruling in the kingdom. And along with that responsibility comes the authority to set the tone of the family. In other words, if you have teenage kids that that are doing what you say, 
and they they have things on their wall that you don't want on the wall. They're they're staying out and involved in activities that you don't want. You have the authority to say, look, if you're in my house, you're under the authority that God has given to me from God. This is what I want you to do. And if you want to stay in my home, you have to do that. There can only be one will in the family. It has to be the father's. And it, it's exercised with the love. This is this is what people don't understand. They, they hear the word authority and they think tyranny. No, no. Was Jesus a tyrant? No, he wasn't. He was a loving ruler. There's comfort in that kind of a rule. Kids are looking for parameters. They're looking for fences. And when you love them and you're laying down your life for them, you can tell them whatever you need to tell them, and they're going to respond. So, so that chapter is very chapter five is very important because really the foundation of the family is that the most important thing is who's in charge here. The answer is is my dad. And when you well, begin to inculcate that in your child when your child is little, and, and and you discipline him when he violates that authority and rebels against it, and you do that with love and compassion, then the tone is set. And by the time that child is five years old, he's trained. And he knows to submit himself to that authority. And he's secure because he knows somebody else is in charge besides him. He knows he's not qualified to be in charge. He's five years old, for goodness sakes. But he tries to be because there's rebellion in all of our hearts. And so that rebellion has to be dealt with, and that's the parent's job. So you're right. That's a very important foundational chapter. Well, and our society has made it very complicated because if you get your idea of the way a family should be based on what you see on a sitcom on TV or based on what you read in a novel about the way they were structured, there are not very many good even role models of people, church, I mean, church-going people who know how to be brave and strong and stand up for what's right. I mean, plenty of us have seen our own friends have kids walk all over them, and we wonder, where is our role model? Who Who is going to show us what it looks like? And yes, exactly. So the men in our society are very confused, most of them. They're trying yes. to be Mr. Nice Guy. They don't know what their identity is. They've not had good leaders or people to teach them what a what a man should do in his home. Instead, they're learning you're supposed to be Mr. Nice Guy, and that's not working very well. So we've essentially reduced them to being a piece of furniture, and we've got women who are running the show and calling the shots, and what are they? Just a, a chair at the end of the table? Um, you know, the story from nature is, you know, we've got the black widow spiders who kill off the, yeah, the spout, exactly. the, the one they, you know, that creates the baby widow, <laughs> black widow spiders, yeah. and and so we've essentially treated men in a very general sense. They're the bimbos or the weirdos or the doofuses on TV yeah. usually. And uh, <clears throat> there was um, we've reduced many of them to sperm donors. Just to to tell you the whole story, there I I actually filed a bill in Jefferson City when I was in the legislature to take away the anonymity of the sperm donors because that puts 
personhood to them too and and uh, i know that it met with great opposition but there you know two-thirds of the women using the fertility services to create babies are not even married anymore so we all thought that was nice that we have fertility clinics because nice married couples are going there and it's making it possible for them to have a baby well not really (laughs) it's it's been like anything else perverted so um, can you talk to me about Chapter 8? This kind of goes into feminism. And I, I want to tell you, I, in my eight years in the legislature, most people, when I would first meet them and they found out I was a representative, they assumed I was a Democrat because most of the women legislators are Democrats. The vast yes. majority, it's not even close. In Missouri, we had a House of Representatives with 163 members, and out of 163, only 34 were women, but of the 34 women, only nine were Republican women. And then of the nine Republican women, only seven were conservative Republican women. <laughs> so... Uh, we're, you know, the reason I was there is, is really my husband sent me there. We we were talking about before the show started about different gifts people have, and and I love to communicate. So I was my husband's mouthpiece, <laughs> and uh, he yeah, stayed home. And <laughs> it was fantastic it, the way it worked for us because we're self-employed. So somebody had to stay home and keep the business Amen. running. And uh, so, <laughs> I like it. <laughs> well, here's the, the uh, quote you made. You said this, the influence of the feminist movement has left much of the church hesitant to address some of the topics for fear of being misunderstood and accused of being sexist. So tell me, what is going on with our churches? Well, I, I think rather than... Um, um, the church standing strong against the world and the world's influence, we have been uh, conformed to the world in a lot of ways. And so we have very subtly and unconsciously began to adopt the world's standards. And that's happening all the time now with gay marriage, obviously, and with with uh, the, their large evangelical churches that have singles groups, people in their 30s and 40s, and they're not expected to be sexually chaste and and pure because uh well everybody knows when you're that old you've got to have sex and and that's that's I, there was an article some time ago in Christianity today by somebody who was advocating that uh so i uh, i i realized that that's the case but the bible has always got to be our standard we've got to always go back to the scriptures and the reason we have the kind of churches that we have is that is what we see in the bible now some people say well it's going to change over the years, and God, God, uh, God, kind of ordained this change that we have the one-man pastor that runs the whole show himself, and nobody else participates. They're all simply spectators. Well, that's like saying the Constitution is a living document. The, certainly, they didn't have computers back in the Bible, and there are other things that they didn't have, but the principles are still the same. And one of those principles is this: the man is the head of his home simply because of his plumbing. It doesn't mean he's the smartest. It doesn't mean he's the most insightful. It doesn't mean he's the most educated. It doesn't mean he doesn't listen to his wife and her input. But leadership is one thing. It's decision-making. Who makes the final decision? 
Now, I can be a, a, a husband who has got a, an intelligent, insightful, brilliant wife. And she comes to me and she says, Robert, what do you think about this? And I listen to her and I realize, good grief, where did she come up with that? She's brilliant. So then I say to her, Jill, that's tremendous insight. We're going to do that. In other words, the idea is hers. And, and, and I'd be a fool not to listen to her. I'd be a fool not to take that insight because she probably knows more than I do. She's smarter than I am. And I'm, I'm, I'm giving you this out of a real-life situation, my own. My wife is so much more insightful in so many ways than I am. But the final decision has got to be mine if I'm the leader, if I'm the head of the home. Now, that doesn't mean I don't delegate to her. I don't make the decision on what we're going to eat tonight for dinner. I don't make all kinds of decisions. As a matter of fact, when you read the, the, the chapter on Proverbs 31, what a woman can do under the authority of her husband is absolutely incredible. And I point that out in that chapter. It's either 9 or 10. So, uh, the, the, in the final analysis, a man is asked to do two things in his family. Number one, to love his wife as Christ loved the church. To lay down his life for her and for his children. To, to, to seek their welfare ahead of his own. And then number two, in the process of loving them that way, he's to lead them toward the kingdom of God with strong, firm decision-making. And, and that's what he's called to do. And, and you know, here's something. I taught this, when I taught this material at, at a Christian school, there were a lot of girls there that were feminists already as Christians. And I told them at that point, I said, all of you are looking for a man to love you the way I've described in chapter 7. And with someone who loves you that way, you will have no trouble following his leadership. Is that not right? And they all nodded their heads and said, you are right. So that's what a woman is looking for. She will follow a man. It's built into her. God has made her that way. She is the helpmate. She is Adam's helper, not his leader. And she's designed to be that way. Our problem is that the men have laid down the job. See, we haven't faced the fact that we don't love our wives that way. We haven't repented for not loving them with agape love. So as a result, they go somewhere else. Well, so and I'll I think, also... I think, I, I was just going to say, I think that's really foundational. It is. I believe that some of the lack of male leadership is also why we've not seen good examples of courtship, which is another topic you get into. But the only way courtship can possibly work is if the parents are in charge and the child is willing to wait for the parents to entrust them that they're going to. You told did, did you have time to read that chapter, Cynthia? The courtship chapter. Uh, yes, about your daughter. Yes, and, and <laughs> right. It really was stunning because we don't understand in our culture how it works. And I, living in a very large metropolitan St. Louis area, cannot point to one example where I have ever seen that work like what you're describing. So, um, certainly, the dad has everything to do with it. You can't just let your daughter go out on a date, and then when she comes home, <clears throat> this is my my experience, okay? My dad would let me go out on a date with my boyfriend. We would come home. We're sitting in the driveway. My boyfriend wants to kiss me. It's going on a little too long, like a lot too long. And my dad is in the house 
flicking the porch light off and on as if I'm supposed to see it. I didn't even know what that meant. I thought maybe the bulb was burning out. (laughs) I love it. Oh, man. Well, you know, the thing I say about that is that a a father should never let his daughter get in a situation where she has to say no to a boy. Because if you do, you're not really protecting her. And, and my daughter was, as I tell in the book, I, I by the way, I, Cynthia, I share all my failures. As a matter of fact, the, the section on courtship, I, I share, I call it my three courtship failures. And I share them all because I know people learn more from my failures than they do from my successes. And listen, over all the years I've lived, they are legion. I, I, I can't even chronicle them all. But I want people to know them and because that's how you learn. You learn from the, the, watching other people's mistakes. But, but I, I think the point is that a father needs to protect his daughter and not let her get in a situation where she has to. You, you, don't, you don't say to her, if he does this, you don't, don't let him do that. If he puts his hand here, don't let him do that. Don't, 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 don't. Well, listen, she's a responder. If she likes the guy and he loves her, and she, you want her to say no, 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 no until her wedding night, and then she turns the switch and says yes, 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 yes. Well, that's not going to happen. So you don't want to get yeah. her in a situation where she has to be the one fighting the boy off. Now, my daughter was, was a handful, and, and she was always pushing it on the fences. And so for me to really protect her was a, was a full-time job, and I did not succeed completely and fully, and I share that in the book. But that I knew that was my failure, not hers. That was my job to protect her, and I didn't do it. Well, my daughter went to a private Christian high school, and I remember the day she came home and told me that one of her friends has a mother who took her to the doctor to get a prescription for birth control pills. Now, you know, that to me sounds like child abuse. You know that your daughter is going to have some young man invading her body and you're saying let's make sure you don't get pregnant when that happens. We're going to anticipate that that's going to happen. That's really incredible. So I've not seen this. I have not seen uh, what you're saying is promiscuity has become the norm even among Christian children. And I'm going to lay a few statistics out here for you and and our listeners who may not be familiar with the sexual promiscuity in adolescence. According to the American Academy of Pediatrics, 36.9% of all 14-year-olds have had sex, more than one out of three. Among the 12th graders, it's 66.9%. 4% who've had sex. Among teens each year, there are about 3 million cases of sexually transmitted diseases and approximately 1 million pregnancies. They've got HPV and HIV. Okay, here we go. HIV is the sixth leading cause of death among persons between 15 and 24 years old in the United States. And that number came from the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, Georgia. But if you thought that was bad, homosexuality is even worse. 83% of all homosexual men surveyed in the survey estimate they've had sex with 50 or more partners in their lifetime. 
43% estimated they had sex with 500 or more partners and 28% with 1,000 or more partners. 79% of homosexual men say over half of their sexual partners are strangers. In their study of sexual profiles, they have 2,583 older homosexuals that they studied, and this was published in the Journal of Sex Research, and they say the modal range for the number of sexual partners ever of homosexuals was between 101 and 500, and that should scare all of us. No wonder, no wonder our culture is in trouble. So what what do you see, though? I, I You know, sadly, we want to believe that Christians are way different, and if you look at what's happening in our churches, we're just not seeing that we're being different. We're actually being absorbed by our culture, and we're seeing other parents that are my age who are having children who... I know get pregnant and it's not that they don't know what's causing it this is the problem with Planned Parenthood they started off with a premise let's have government fund us because the problem is people are ignorant and they don't know any better so we will address the education meanwhile we've created a real monster so what do you say to that well I, I I think the heart of the thing is the gospel that we're preaching uh, is not the gospel that Paul preached. Uh, and this is what I mean by that, by that, Cynthia. Uh, we tell our kids to don't, don't get involved in sex, and then we get mad at them when they do, and we haven't, the reason they do that is that we haven't protected them ourselves, we haven't built fences for them, Paul says in Galatians 3 that the law, the purpose of the law is to guard us till faith comes. And our kids, for the most part, don't really know the Lord in some kind of an experiential way. Uh, what happens is you grow up in a Christian family and you believe everything with your head and you believe your parents' faith, but it's not yours yet until you really see the depths of the wickedness in your heart. You, you don't really know you need a Savior and so you're not really born again yet. Because when new life comes, then things change. You have a different perspective about sex. We try to get kids to have the right perspective about sex. Well, hey, they're not Christians yet. They don't really know the Lord in a biblical way. They haven't experienced what I call a New Testament conversion. So what they need is protection. And you start protecting them when they're little. You teach them when they're one year old to obey you. And the Bible is really clear. My old section on child training talks about how you get your kid. When, when you say, come, he comes. When you say, go, he goes. When you say, go up and brush your teeth and get in bed and I'll come up and let you good night and pray with you, he goes and does it Well, on, on one command, not having to rail at him and hassle with him and push him and get mad at him and all, all this stuff. There's a way, a biblical way, you can teach your kid to do exactly what you say. So if you do that when he's four, well, one, two, three, four, and five, by the time he's six, he's learned how to how to follow your leadership. He's learned how to do what you say. It's a part of his life. So so we're hurting. My 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 organization is called Gospel Parenting, and what I do is I work with. I speak at homeschool conventions, and I work with parents on on how do you train your kid. 
how do you get him to obey you? And, and uh, so going to bed at night is not a, a, a shoot out of the OK Corral to get him up there. It takes 30, 30 to 45 minutes to get him to bed. They're, they're biblical. We, we've gotten away from the Bible again. And I go through in great detail in my book how to, how to train children to, to be obedient. And then when they get to, get to high school, then it, it's not a problem. They're, they're, they're trained already. That Their direction is set. You've pointed your arrow. He's ready to be released. Uh, so so it, it goes further back than that. It goes all the way back to when they're little kids. And then it, it goes further back than that. Listen to this, Cynthia. When I speak at a homeschool convention, I, first of all, in order to sell my books and my DVD series and all my products, I've got to, first of all, convince these parents that they have a need because they're so blind they don't even see their kid's rebellion. I had one gal come up to my up to my booth and looking at my materials, and she had about a 14-year-old girl in tow behind her that was rebellion sticking out every pore, rolling her eyes at her mother and turning away from her when she was talking to her. And so she was looking at my DVD series on training your children, building obedience into your child. So that's a, that's a five-message series. And she said, oh, thank you, and put it down and walked away and said, come on, dear. And the gal rolled her eyes again, just rebellion everywhere, and she didn't even see it. But do you think by the time do you think by the time her child was fourteen it was too late for it's your not, tape it's series never, it's to help? It's not too late. No, it's not, Cynthia. As long as that child is in your home, and, and you you have learned yourself the principles of child training, and you have learned that God loves you as a parent whether you screw up or not. His needle doesn't move when when you don't do a good job. When you lose your temper with your child when you're disciplining him or her, God looks at you and says, "You're going to make it. I'm with you." I love you. When when you know God feels that way toward you, you for the first time can begin to feel that way toward your child. And your child senses that love, even in the midst of disciplining him or her. He feels that. He feels that love. Now, if you're doing it out of anger to get back at him, or so your life will be more comfortable, or so you will look good, all those reasons why we discipline our kids, he knows that as well. And that's when Ephesians 6 says, provoke not your children to wrath. And what you do when you try to discipline that way is you're provoking your children to wrath. You're driving him away. That's not the gospel. That's not grace. See, I advocate spanking because it's very, very biblical. But I advocate doing it from the foundation of the gospel, the grace of God. I love you just like you are. No matter what you do, I'm going to love you. You cannot run me off. I'm going to love you. But in the process, I'm going to beat the tar out of you. Because, frankly, the Bible tells me to. Beat him with a rod. He will not die. So I'm going to be faithful because I love you. Discipline is an expression of love. And if with you my husband and we were we were foster parents for nine months. And during that time, the, they made it the Division of Social Services made it very clear to us that we are not to lay a hand on the foster children, and you could really see that they took advantage of that. They knew that they oh, were certainly. immune from anything. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know, and, and you know the, the most your we kids will, your kids will do it at age two. They, they pick up at age two when when you're out in public and you can't spank them immediately. They they, they go on a tear. So what advice would you give to the mother of a 14-year-old? Should we have somebody in our audience 
that um, it's not too late to begin? And won't no. the 14-year-old have a bad reaction, even more well, awful? than? no, I'll I tell you what you do, and, and this is the thing that you have got to understand the gospel yourself in order to do this, but you start out by sitting down with your 14-year-old, and you say, you know, I've just learned something that's been like a thunderbolt to me, and that is this, I have really blown it with you, and I am so sorry. I have sinned against you, because when you were little, I didn't discipline you biblically. I wasn't consistent. Ask the Lord to show you what it was you didn't do. Maybe you did spank, but you did it out of anger. Or maybe you spanked inconsistently, and, and the, the kid played Russian roulette with you. He figured if there's one chance out of nine nine bullets in the chamber and there's one empty, the kid will take a chance on defying mm-hmm. you. He thinks he can get away with it. So people say, so, "Pick your battle." Hey, hey, listen. Every every fight's a battle. Every every defiance of your authority is a battle. And so anyway, you sit down and you repent, Cynthia. You say, "Where you are today is my fault." And it's not your fault. Listen, let me ask you this. Why do we get mad at our kids when they misbehave? Whose job is it to train them? Is it their job to train themselves? No, it's our job. We should be mad at ourselves. We're the ones that have blown it as parents. So you start and you say, this is this is what I'm going to do. You're 14 years old, and it's going to be embarrassing to you, and it's embarrassing to me. But I'm going to spank you the next time you defy me. Now, if it's a 14- or 15-year-old boy that's as big as you are, he may say to you, no, you're not. And so you say to him, well, I'm not going to fight you, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to put your hands on the table and bend over, and I'm going to spank you very hard. And he'll say, no, you're not. And I will say, okay, then, your bags are on the porch. In order to be in this house, you've got to be under my authority because God has given me that rule in my home. It's delegated to me straight from the throne of God. So either you submit to my spanking, and now keep in mind, remember this: where we are today is all my fault, and 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 that's and I really mean that with all my heart. If you don't see that yet, you're not you, you can't do it. If you don't see that it's your fault, then then you can't you can't follow this plan. And I pray that God will show whoever's listening that if that's where you are, it is your fault. I don't even have to know the situation. Because, listen, if you're faithful when children are little and discipline them properly and love them with all your heart, by the time they're five, they're trained. I've seen it I've seen it happen too many times. And I don't care how strong will they are. I don't care how rebellious they are. If you're consistent and the most important thing in your life is training your child, he's going to be trained by the time he's five or six years old. And so well, we have a... That's okay. I was just going to say, we have a generation today that has had more licentiousness than any other previous generation. The kids today are growing up on electronic devices. They're, they have Wii and, and all kinds of computer games on the phone and iPod, and they're somewhat addicted. And so I think the addiction to the electronics has made them less responsive, but it's also been like a babysitter that has taken the child's time and attention and made them barely even notice that the parents aren't there because the electronic babysitter is amusing them. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I think the Lord will show parents that really want to know. He's going to show them that. And, and, 
And, and, and I don't think you make rules. I, I think rules are a result of life. Rules don't create life. Rules are a result of life. So what happens is when you really love your kid with the life of the Lord, and, and, and the Lord has shown you, the way, the way you move into faith is by repentance. When the Lord has shown you your own sin as a parent, and you're able to repent to your child. Listen, how many people have parents that they never heard say, I was wrong? Have you ever said to your kid, hey, listen, I lost it with you. I was wrong by losing my temper. Please forgive me. Uh, you're not you're not ready to parent effectively until you're ready to say that. If you think you're a perfect parent, uh, the Lord hasn't opened your eyes yet. And you need to pray that prayer in Ephesians 1.17, where Paul prays for the Ephesian church. I pray the eyes of your heart would be opened. God's got to show us our hearts. And the next generation is looking to us to lead them. When I was in the Missouri State Legislature, I was successful at getting Planned Parenthood out of the classrooms because they were using that opportunity to network with the students and develop those relationships so that when a pregnancy happens, they can already know where the abortion provider is. And I brought a lot of attention to my office in my efforts to do that. And it was, we had a comical moment. It's (laughs) <laughs> Thank you. Well, it's funny now, but let me tell you what happened. There was a day when busloads of teenagers came to the Missouri Capitol, and they all came to my office. <laughs> Isn't that special? <laughs> and they wanted to have an appointment with me, and they they um they got they they actually asked me in my office, why don't why are you against having us learn about sex education, and. The adults with these teenagers incited them to nearly riot. It got so ugly. There was no common ground. There was, I had no ability to enlighten them. It wasn't an honest dialogue. It was an effort to shame and humiliate anybody. Yes. So, um, they started chanting. We want sex ed. We want sex ed. Now, you've got to imagine hundreds of these kids chanting that outside my office and how absurd it sounded <laughs> because I don't believe they wanted sex ed. I believe the adults were trying to make them think that's what you should chant now. And but were they, uh, Cynthia, were these parents or was it Planned Parenthood personnel? I don't know, but I'm presuming it was the Planned Parenthood personnel because it was during the middle of a school day in public school buses that was, you know, the yellow buses yeah. bringing the kids in. And I, um, some of them, you know, I told them I had to go now. <laughs> and as I was walking, I noticed they started chasing me, and I started going faster, and they kept running faster. And I ran down the stairs into the parking garage, and, and I, I shut the door of my car, and I whipped out my cell phone, and I called my husband, and I said, Bernie, they're chasing me. It's <laughs> incredible. It was so horrifying, but I don't believe those children had it in them naturally as much as the adults who were trying to get them all yeah. riled up were trying to get them to do that. And, and of course, 
they called in the Capitol Police and the extra police who then roamed the halls the rest of the day, making sure everybody would be calm and mannerly. But it was such an eye-opener. We have to realize that... The, the kids are a product of the adults who are training them, and they, uh, the damage done by getting Planned Parenthood in the schools has, has been eroding the family because they're taking the place of the parents, and they're yes. saying, it's like if you had teenagers and you said, um, <clears throat> I don't want you to use the car, but in case you really want to, I'm leaving the keys right here on the table. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. That's exactly right. Yes. So, anyway, I want to ask you about politics because we do have a lot of political, politically astute listeners. Uh, both the Republicans and the Democrats seem to be finding governmental solutions to all of our problems. And so whenever anything emerges, you name it, from A to Z, it seems like their quickest answer is, aha, let's see if we can pass a law or fund a program that will take care of this instead of looking into ourselves. So is there a governmental solution for problems that are faced by the families? Yes, I, I, I think there's a solution, and it's not governmental, obviously. But, uh, again, when I talked at the beginning of the show about the kingdom of God and understanding the kingdom and looking at every family solution or every family problem through the lens of the kingdom, the answer falls into place. It's the same way with civil government and the church. Because those are the three institutions that all answer directly to God with, with nobody in between. In other words, the family answers straight to God through the, 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 the father, the husband and the father. The church answers to God through the elders in the church. Uh, the family and the church are different. The, 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 the church, the leadership in the church biblically is always corporate. There's never a man who's the father of the church. There's never a one-man pastor that the Lord is speaking through to the church. It's always corporate in the Bible. The family is different. The family is one man. The, the father is the head of the home, and Jesus is the head of the father. Jesus is the head of his church, not through a, a single man, but through a corporate body of elders. And Jesus is the head of civil government through the magistrates. Through those people that have been elected in our in our country, we have election. But whatever the the governmental structure is, they will answer to God for how they have ruled. So those are three separate institutions that answer to God, not to one another. The family doesn't answer to the church. In other words, the church doesn't come in and say to the heads of homes, "This is what you need to do with your wife," or "This is how you need to train your children." The the elders teach. Their rule is, is ministerial, not magisterial. So they, they open the Word of God and lay out for the fathers what some of the stuff I shared with you. But I don't, as an elder in the church, go, go be sure the Father's doing it. He answers directly to Jesus as his head. Jesus sees for sure that he's doing it. Okay, so along with those three institutions, there, there are, from the Bible, assigned responsibilities for each one. And the civil government, which is what you want to talk about, the civil government's responsibility is to punish evil and to protect righteousness. That's it. There are no other responsibilities biblically for the civil government. It is to, is to protect the righteous and to punish the evil. 
the ones who have are lawbreakers biblically. In other words, what law are they going to break? Is it any law that the government decides to pass? No, the laws are biblically that they're in the Bible. The, the Bible has got a, a a a whole cadre of laws that define things like murder and and distinguish between murder and self defense. And a lot of our laws, frankly have their roots in those laws, in in, in, uh, in uh, what the Bible teaches. But well, I saw, what, what, the, mm-hmm. what the civil government has done is go way beyond those two responsibilities. And what they've done is gotten into economics, they've gotten into family, they've gotten to protect uh, the, all kinds of different things that, that, are, that have nothing to do biblically with what the Bible says civil government is for. So I what, saw what first. Mm-hmm. Go, yeah, ahead. go, go ahead. Well, I, I was going to say I saw firsthand how much the church um, was originally when I was in in the legislature. I saw glaring places where the government was taking up the part that did belong the ch- to the church, doing charity work that belonged charity to the work. church, yeah. not that's, that's not the, the church, government. Absolutely. And uh, absolutely. and then it got. We had a time when some of the church ecumenical church groups got together and wrote me a letter as a legislator asking me, the government, to better fund their programs. And that one always seemed to make me angry when I got that. I tried to not write off, write, write a letter back very quickly with what I really was thinking. But when the church asks government to interfere with their domain, that's a problem. But it's then there are places. It seems like there are places where the church has interfered with the family. I remember reading a book. You know, we've got church programs to make up for the lack of men in the home. Absolutely. So tell me about that. How do we fix it? Well, the the, answer is always the same. First of all, we meet the Lord in a real way. And when we do, we I just talked to a guy on the phone this afternoon that that uh, that had read another one of my books and called me. As a matter of fact, the book I wrote on the church called A Glorious Church, Attacking the Gates of Hell, where I lay down in that book what the Bible says about how the church functions. So what you do is you always you always go back to the Bible. The Bible is our standard of faith and practice. And 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 churches don't go back to the Bible. Hey, we have a one man pastor because we always have. This is what my denomination has always done, and we're going to do it this way. We're going to have a board of trustees, or we're going to, you know, whatever it is. We don't we don't realize. We think the Bible is a book to get us saved and get us to heaven, and then everything else we're going to just do what we've always done. No, the Bible is the answer. It's got the answers. Once life is there. Now, I can't emphasize enough, and I do this in all my books, I emphasize the foundation is always the cross and Jesus Christ. It's always faith. It's never the law. You don't start with the law. The law comes as a result of life. The law does not produce life. So once life is flowing and you've got somebody excited about the Lord, then he says, this guy told me today, he said, how do you do elders? And, and I didn't say to him, this is what the Bible says about doing elders. But I laid out for him because he wants to know. I can tell there's life. He just needs to be pointed in, in a direction. I said, go look at the Bible. This is what I think the Bible says. So what we want to do is always point people back to the Scriptures. Because the Scriptures have got amazing things to say. And we, we, just, we don't think to look. 
we think we'll just go by what has always happened or, or what people tell me or who's got the, the most cogent argument. I'll just go with the guy that makes the most is the, is the most reasonable. Well, listen, the Bible solution is not always does not always seem to be reasonable. It, it doesn't seem reasonable to spank your kid and inflict pain on him when he's three years old to to to, to change his conduct. But the Bible says that's what the only thing that does it. It doesn't seem reasonable when the Bible says life comes only out of death. Life does not come from strength. It comes from weakness. Power power comes from weakness. If you want to be great, you've got to be a servant. See, those things don't make sense to the world. They're foolishness. But God says, no, this is the way my world runs. This is, this is counterintuitive. My gospel is counterintuitive. Now, let me tell you, Cynthia, that's power. When people begin to get a hold of that, the whole, the whole world begins to change. So that's what I mean by understanding the gospel, the counterintuitive gospel of the grace of God. Well, you've certainly given us a lot to think about. I appreciate you coming on and helping us. We've barely scratched the surface. And I know. I hope I, I, I'm just thinking I'd love to talk to you longer. <laughs> No, why don't we have you back again? Because the problems are not going to go away tomorrow when we wake up. As best as you and I try to enlighten others that there is a better way, there are more who need to hear this message because you are a lone voice. There are very few people who fully grasp what we need to do. So many churches have spent a lot of time, energy, and money trying to do what makes them look good, but it may be making the problem worse instead of better. That's right. And That's right. nobody's – there are very few people who are brave enough to talk about the failed policies and how they're not serving us well, but you certainly have gotten into a little bit of it. Um, one last question I have time for. A lot of libertarians, and I'm speaking of the libertarians with the capital L, they have a problem understanding why we have any public policies relating to marriage, but the reason we do is because the family has economic implications, and conversely, the lack of family always involves growing government bigger. Either the family is going to be bigger and stronger, or the government is going to be bigger and stronger, and there is no other way about it. What is your message to those people? Well, my message is this. Biblically, one of the functions of the civil government is to protect the righteous, as I mentioned. And one of those things that the government protects is the institution of marriage. The government also doesn't attack the church. Biblically, it protects the church. So the church can... By the way, I, 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 didn't, I mentioned the two functions of government, to, to punish evil and protect the righteous. The function of the church is to proclaim the gospel. That its its only function is to proclaim the gospel. The function of the church is to supply young, trained men and women to serve as leaders in the church and in the civil government. So the the family's job is to reproduce and to train those kids for the, 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 they'll be the leaders in the next generation. So I believe that the the civil government has a, a, a very important role in protecting the family. And I think that's that's its function. So so the way it does that is it, it gives licenses to be married 
and it it it, it protects marriage against encroachment. In other words, the, the whole thing about no fault divorce is is ridiculous. And what that's done well, that's more than anything else is helped destroy the family. Can you come back on our show and talk to us about all these other no-fault divorces? And I sure enjoyed having you with us tonight. Okay, thank you so much. Welcome to Homefront on Missouri Grassroots Radio. I'm Cynthia Davis, your host. As a writer, speaker, and former legislator, we discuss limiting government, fiscal responsibility, and fair taxation. I'm a mother of seven and a wife of one for over three decades. So I bring you my personal experience. And now it's time for Homefront with Cynthia Davis. 